and the opportunities are very clear, you know, that uh, in terms of sustainable jobs, um, meaningful work, and straight up dollar value, because, you know, it's easy to get the stats on how much money per household is spent on food every year. And that money could be spent on, you know, local food instead of imported food. And I'm not saying that this is all going to happen overnight. I think it's something that you would phase in, mm-hmm. right? But I think that this is the new reality that we should be working towards. And I would just be ecstatic if I could have, um, you know, even a bigger role than what I'm doing right now. Welcome to this podcast series, 54 Degrees North, Digging Deeper into Food Security. In this episode, we learn about the stories that motivated these food producers to get into farming and select what and or where they grow. My name is Jacob Beaton. I live in Kitwanga, BC. We moved here a year and a half ago from the Hazeltons, so not that much of a move for us. And uh, we have, we bought an old farm and we've been in the middle of getting it up and running since we bought it. I heard on the radio the other day that the average age of a Canadian farmer is 60 <laughs> years old. Yeah. Um, I'd say and, that's low. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I find it really interesting because it seems, and I'd love to hear the story, that your your son was actually mm-hmm. a big motivation in starting. Yes. Farm. So I'd yeah. hear that. Yeah, so my son is probably dragging that average down. That's probably why it's not 68 <laughs> or something. Um, yeah, my son's 13. He started actively gardening and growing food when he's about nine, 10 years old. And that was at our house in Hazleton. We started converting our lawn over to garden. Um, it was a year my dad passed away, actually. My dad was uh, a hobbyist gardener when I was a kid growing up, up here in the Hazletons. So we started in 2015. And my son really got into the seed propagation. Um, he essentially uh, fell in love with um, seeing seeds grow. Like he, he still to this day will show me a little seed and just say, Dad, can you believe that this tiny seed is going to grow into a giant plant? Uh, both my sons got quite involved with planting and then the harvesting. Um, and it was a few years ago that he approached me and told me that he wanted to sell at the farmer's market. Uh, I was not a fan of the idea initially. I thought he was too young. Um, I said no. And he got really upset and was, got quite emotional. And it kind of took me aback, you know. And, and, and I said, well, why do you want to sell at the farmer's market? And he said, Dad, I don't want to do it for money. I don't care about the money. I just want to make people happy. And I almost cried myself right in this moment, seeing him being so genuine. He said, I'll, I'll give the food away. You know, I just want to make people happy. I just want to talk to people. I want to share, you know, how excited I am about growing food. And uh, so I was like, wow, well, that's a really great thing. And, and that's when you're in business, you hope for something that you love to do that you could eventually make a living at. And I saw that in his drive, that it wasn't purely financially motivated at all. Um, So we approached the farmer's market board in Hazleton. And it was actually funny because we went to the farmer's market and I asked, I said, you know, are are children allowed to come and set up? Are they allowed? And and they said, well, we've never been asked before. (laughs) (laughs) And 
and I and but they were really thrilled, like they were happy because Noah was already, you know, he was propagating plants as well, so he's taking clippings and growing new plants, so cloning essentially, and then he was also growing excess seed starts, so he'd start um, enough for our garden, and then he'd always have extra. So we were at the market, and they had an impromptu board meeting. You know, the the board chair said, "Hey, we've got quorum here. Let's just do a board meeting and discuss this." <laughs> so they huddled, and they came out, and they said, "Well, actually, we're going to create a special membership here just for Noah because he's so young. We don't think it's fair to charge him the full price, uh, and we want to support him." And the deal is, is that it's just his farm stand. You know, us parents weren't going to bring our things and sell them. It was just going to be Noah's thing. So, so that was a great deal. Um, and we did that for about three years. Um, Noah went to the farmer's market every year, sold his plants in Hazleton. He was selling lettuce. He was selling zucchinis and squashes and herbs and all kinds of things. Um, but he would harvest himself. And he would spend the day before market harvesting, washing, packing, and he just loved it. So I loved it too. I mean, I loved being out in the outside. I would, I had a lot of stressful work I was doing and I would find that being out and having my hands in the dirt was therapeutic for me. I ended up reading some research that actually showed like a direct a correlation of something about dirt in your fingernails actually making you happier. And I found that to be true for myself. Um, but it was nothing more than a hobby at the time. And then, uh, yeah, so, so the end of that story of what happened in Hazleton is that Noah pushed us to convert our entire lawn over to garden. <laughs> we, I, I preserved enough like for a trampoline and, you know, a picnic on the grass, but everything else got turned to, to garden. So it was probably about half an acre, maybe a little less than half an acre's worth of yard that turned into a full-time garden. We, I should say, this is really important. We, we homeschool, we free school our kids. So this was part of his schooling. I mean, uh, our approach to education is more around identifying and nurturing our children's gifts and natural interests and abilities. So for him, it was obvious that this was kind of a passion of his and highly educational. Like there's so much science in growing food, you know, he got very much into companion planting, um, you know, beneficials, like finding out which plants and even weeds were beneficials, which ones were not, uh, insects, which insects were beneficials, which ones are not. Two years ago, we as a family decided to make a move from living in town um, to finding some land. And we had criteria. So the criteria for our land search is that we wanted something that was not too remote and not right in town. So we wanted kind of this, you know, suburban property. We wanted water. <laughs> you know, we, we wanted to, to have good water um, and, and we wanted arable land. Then we, this property came up in Kitwanga. Uh, we went and looked at it and it was the first property that we all gave a thumbs up to. So we had, it was a kind of a, Anybody could veto a property in our family, including the kids, which could be frustrating at times because there's a couple places that, you know, my wife really wanted or that I really wanted. <laughs> and one of the kids would just be shaking. I was like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> like, okay, I guess. So. All right. Like, I'll let that one go. So, so this, this place in Kitwango was the first one. We came, came and saw it and we just all fell in love, like deeply in love with it. Um, the seller 
was really interested in passing it on to a family with young children. It had farm status over 10 years ago. It had been an active hay farm within the last 60 years. Um, prior to that, it was active. So the building inspector who came in from Burns Lake actually grew up next to this property. So it was really cool. I didn't know that. He just showed up, you know, we hired him to come do the inspection as part of the purchase. Yeah. And he said, oh, I mucked out this barn when I was a kid. I was like, what? He said, yeah, I grew up just right next door. <laughs> oh, perfect. So you had lots so, of stories to share. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and that's how we found out that they were ranching, like the, the, the there was uh, ranching going on here, uh, who informed us that from here all the way up to Gitmeow, the, the Gifsan used to farm here as well and ranch. And uh, yeah, and then we met this old fellow who since passed away. He was one of our neighbors. He, he was in his 80s. And he and he shared some of his memories of what this used to be like. So he was very active, but a long time ago, you know, 60 plus years ago. Since then, it has turned mostly back to forest. Um, but there were a few, we have about 10 acres that were left of a quarter section. So 10 acres out of 160 that was uh, maintained as hayfield up until 10 years ago. But the hayfield had started to turn back into forest as well. <laughs> My name is Crystal Nelligan, and I am the owner and operator of Stir Artisan Tizan here in Smithers, British Columbia. My grandmother was a phenomenal gardener, so I spent a lot of time in her gardens as a child, just getting lost and being completely in awe and smitten by how plants move and change and grow and feed us uh, throughout my childhood. But really, that was my main influence at that time sometimes there's just certain things in life that you do that you just have a real draw and inclination to and for me it's always been working with plants it's just a very natural thing for me to do so I, I don't know I, I think it's just something I've always been interested in. I've done a huge amount of reading and as soon as I left home I volunteered as a woofer in various uh, farms and I've had my hands in the soil ever since. So it's been, you know, 30 plus years of just growing in different climates, growing in different uh, microclimates and learning how to work the earth so that it produces as much food and herbs as possible. <laughs> so I moved up to Smithers in about 1997 and I was working in forestry at the time. And I, shortly after moving here, went to Safeway and the shelves were pretty much empty. And so I asked the manager what was going on. And he said a truck had gone off the road. And that was one truck. Uh, I realized very quickly, wow, if two trucks had gone off the road, the store would be empty. And where does that leave everyone? So that was my first sort of introduction to even, be, to even think about food security. Uh, and it led me down the path of years of work around that. Um, when I first met you, wow, about almost 20 years ago, we were, we were both renting a place on the old experimental farms where you started your, the Northern Root Community Garden out there. And I remember you doing canning workshops and learning 
that you could pickle carrots. Yes. <laughs> <Such things. laughs> um, but maybe you could also um, first start off by just giving a what history you might know about the old experimental farm uh, okay. that's just outside of Smithers. It's, it's quite the amazing place. It was founded or opened in 1937. Uh, it's a 320, or originally was a 320-acre property. Uh, and its purpose was to educate farmers or aspiring farmers to uh, how to best farm in a short season northern climate. So when people came from afar originally to this valley to build their farms, there was very little knowledge about what kind of crops would do well here. And it was a place where farmers could share that information and also learn information that had been gleaned from other experimental farms across the country. So they grew forage crops, uh, different kinds of livestock, grains, vegetables. Uh, the facility was built largely by Dutch families, which you can really see in the architecture there. And um, some of the facilities that were still there when uh, Northern Root Community Gardens started in about 1999-2000 was a beautiful old root cellar, which we kind of uh, fixed up and made it a little more safe. And we were able to use that. The, the old uh, creamery was there and we used that to store potatoes and such we were growing. The granary was there. We put a new roof on it, a beautiful building where they used to store the grains uh, and other various crops that they grew there. Um, there was also an amazing kitchen. Um, we used it for our canning workshops and uh, we did other courses and workshops in that building as well. At the height of our time there, we had 30 plus growers growing there. We had two greenhouses and we were purchasing the produce grown by the various community members to create a veggie pate spread, which we were selling at the local health food store uh, and the farmer's market. So it was a really uh, amazing place to launch from for that organization. The property was sold and the project needed to be moved. And I had actually purchased a property elsewhere with another group of people. So that was another project uh, and I was pregnant. So I was leaving the project at the time that the property was sold. And the volunteers that were left through blood, sweat and tears found uh, a new location um, with community services backing them to plant the garden. So now the Northern Root Community Garden Association is off of Railway Avenue uh, and it's just driving. I mean, I every time you drive by, you see every plot is being utilized and I've heard rumors that they could even use more space. So the movement is very much alive and it was the volunteers and growers that were at the experimental farm that were able to bring it to town and closer to the population in town. And I think it was just really timely and it was really ripe uh, for, for that kind of a project in the community. And shortly after more community gardens were springing up all over the, all over the community. So I think it was a, a movement of that met its time. It really, I think people have really tapped into how important it is to grow your own food when you live in a northern community. So my name is Mark Fisher. I have a market 
type American garden type operation up on Hislop Road, just outside of Tilqua. I've been doing it for about 16, 18 years or so. When I was younger, I wanted, well, I grew up working on farms southwestern Ontario. When I came out west, I've always been involved in the food service industry one way or another and uh, was inspired by a woman, Tracy Strong, out near Woodset. Uh, the way she did things at her farm and also um, actually when I worked in Ontario as a, with youth programs, one of our host families had a 150 farm CS, or 150 family CSA, so a community supported agriculture program, which fed 150 people uh, off grid. And it, just, it was a different type of model than I was used to. So I was inspired by that to perhaps look at a way to uh, work the land in a, in a, in a way that was kind of needed, met my, my environmental and social goals and all that sort of stuff. I guess uh, when I say social goals, food has always been around community. So um, that's the way I approach things around here. And having people come to the farm, done different types of crop share with people. Yeah, I've focused on a bunch of different products over the years, but um, have narrowed down to uh, three or four. Uh, the more, the better for the land, but it's a, it's a tricky balance for economics and efficiencies and economies of scale and all that. So I tend not to do 40 or 50 products anymore, but focus on half dozen or so. I've focused more on garlic and squash because it's basically a storage crop. Um, eggs, there's no shortage of demand for eggs so you can always sell out of eggs um cut flowers we kind of just got into that i wouldn't say by accident but it wasn't something i was planning on going towards um but it just seemed like people wanted them and yeah found the right partner to do it with so uh that's kind of how that one came to be but the other ones it was more of a practical reason um storage and timing you know it's all about timing trying to juggle different things and every product has their own timeline so trying to put together a kind of a suite of products that works so you're not overloaded all at one time you can spread that work out hi my name is laurie gallant and i'm a partner with hazelton hops uh, we are an off-grid farm uh, in the hazeltons uh, I have a background in permaculture, and when we bought this farm, I had just completed a 12-day intensive program called a Permaculture Design Certificate, and I learned so much about how to work with nature and all about like time stacking and analyzing what you want to raise on your farm based on the needs and yields of each element. And um, we had really decided that perennials um, would be a very sustainable choice for us. We were particularly interested in the forest garden model where you're planting uh, based on uh, the idea that you grow things in canopy layers. And that's originally how I got into hops um, because hops were, you know, kind of some of the tallest things that we wanted to grow on the farm. Uh, we also have different fruit trees and then we have berry bushes and then we have uh, like lower level herbs and strawberries and, and that kind of thing. But with the hops specifically, um, Bill had always had a passion for home brewing. Okay. And uh, he'd actually, this is a bit of a funny story. He'd been brewing his own beer 
since he was 17. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, because uh, being the clever little monkey that he was, um, being too young to actually purchase beer, he wasn't too young to buy the beer kits in a store. You're allowed to do that. <laughs> so, and then, you know, I've been friends for quite a long time with Daryl Tucker, um, who started Sherwood Mountain Brewery at a terrace. And, you know, that was one of the first conversations we had had with uh, the local breweries was when it was still a dream for him. And uh, he was visiting us one day and he's looking out into our 17 acre field, which at that time, um, and is still mostly used for growing hay for livestock here. And uh, he's like, what are you guys going to do with that great big field? Like, we don't know yet. Like, we haven't lived here long enough. We're still observing and trying to figure out what the market wants. And it's like, I'm going to start up a brewery. You guys should grow me some hops. Interesting idea. We don't know anything about hops. <laughs> so that began um, a very long process of doing a lot of research on hops. We do have like enough to certainly support like a special uh, seasonal production of beer. And Sherwood did make a really delicious, yummy um, beer with our hops three summers ago. Okay. Uh, but yeah, since then, sadly, um, none of the breweries have had the capacity um, in terms of equipment and in terms of time to follow up on that. So, yeah, there has not been um, that strong demand at a commercial scale that our market research before we planted had revealed. Right. Yeah. So we're, we're actually thinking oddly that there might be a silver lining to this pandemic um, where suddenly local hops will be in demand because it will be very difficult to source hops from outside of the area. It's fun hearing the background stories and motivations behind our food producers. This episode of 54 Degrees North was recorded on unceded Wet'suwet'en territory in May and June 2020. Given COVID restrictions, it was all done through Zoom. Thanks so much to Jacob Beaton, Crystal Nelligan, Mark Fisher, and Laurie Gallant for the interviews and insights. This podcast was produced by myself, Nikki Skuse, with production and editing assistance by Pam Hassan. Thanks to Saltwater Hank for the music and to Facundo Gastiozoro for the artwork. Thanks to the Rapid Response Fund for Changemakers at Makeway for making this possible. You can download other episodes of 54 Degrees North on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or listen to it on CICK, Smithers Community Radio. <laughs>